This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Tarek Sheikh is a senior chief deputy district attorney in Colorado's Jefferson County. Growing up, Tarek was one of those kids who never stopped asking questions. You know, the kid who asked his babysitter to show him where in the Bill of Rights it says that it doesn't apply to children. As Tarek found his way to law school and settled into professional life, he developed a passion for the justice system. In his journey through life, Tarek has found that his most rewarding role is serving and engaging from a place of authenticity. Join us on this episode of Our Voices to learn about how this curious kid grew into an advocate for taking a holistic, humanizing approach to the prosecution of justice and encouraging those around him to do the same. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher, and with me today is my co-host. Hi, I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sutter uh, Roche, Smith, and Schellenberger. And today we're very excited to have our guest here with us. Hi, everyone. My name is Tarek Sheikh. I am a uh, senior chief deputy in Jefferson County and also the uh, incoming chair of the COBALT program for the Bar Association. Thanks so much for having me. And for those of you that don't know what COBALT is, it is the Colorado Bar Association's Leadership Training Academy and also how we became friends. And what a magical experience it was. I'd recommend it to anyone, especially when you get to meet Mallory. It really like brings like, folks together. It's like the Bar Association version of summer camp. That's what it seems like to me. It kind of is. Uh, it sounds more culty because we all start talking in things like yes. colors Oh my all God, the time. yes. Yeah. I literally told Linda today as we were prepping, I was like, none of our guests are greens. And so we don't need like outlines. And she was like, what's a green? I was yeah. like, you're I a green. I still don't know what that means, Mallory. But she is one. I can tell you she is one. So come to the Cobalt program and find out about the culty colors. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Um, Well, so in case you don't know about our podcast, um, the way we structure our interviews is we want to know every single thing about your life. So you're going to tell us who were you, who are you, and who are you going to be when you grow up? So let's start with your childhood. Who were you? Oh, man. Well, that's that's a big topic area. (laughs) Uh, my father was actually a first-generation uh, immigrant to America. He came uh, to this country um, from India. Mm. And, you know, you hear a lot of, like, the classic stories of wanting a better life or escaping, you know, something that's happening in the world. He wanted a Mustang. So he came <laughs> to America and immediately bought a Mustang. Perfect. <laughs> and that was sort of where we where we started. And he moved up to Albany, New York. Um, where he met my mother, who was actually a uh, uh, daughter of a farmer and of farmers outside of Syracuse, New York. Um, you know, the classic love tale. <laughs> and uh, so half my family essentially are Indian folk who, you know, live across the world. And then my mom's side of the family, we have like hunters in Alaska, Mormons in Oklahoma, timber folk in Oregon. It's a pretty diverse family wow. tree. Yeah. And then there was me, who grew up as the 
brownest kid in Albany, in a suburb outside of Albany, New York. Um, and that's, so that's kind of where we started. Um, it was always kind of an interesting experience for me because my father <clears throat> being so, uh, kind of into the American culture and wanting to be Americanized, it is kind of like that prototypical looking at the American dream and trying to establish yourself and, and things of that nature. And for me then kind of being the next generation down, it led to a lot of, as I'm coming up, you know, learning American schools and things like that, not necessarily having my father have any real clue how American <laughs> culture really worked um, in the grand scheme of things. So it was a lot of me figuring things out on my own to just kind of like, you know, survive in this in this structure. And out of that kind of grew a lot of, I think, sort of both resilience and just also my ability to just kind of question everything, which has always been kind of one of my, as Mallory knows, <laughs> a lot of a lot of my my background is um, really asking questions of why things are happening the way they are, why they why they go that way, because that was something that I've just kind of done organically through most of my childhood. How it's did mostly that... a gift. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that serve you as a kid, asking questions about everything, figuring out how everything worked and why? Got me in a lot of trouble, mostly. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, you know, it really, it was it was one of the, you know, I was the kid that was always like playing detective, right? So you're always asking questions. You know, it's I'm a prosecutor now. It was kind of that natural transition. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot, it was a lot of questioning, like, you're telling me to do something, why, right? Mm -hmm. And... One of my parents' favorite stories is we had a, uh, they went out for the night, we had a babysitter, um, and it was time to go to bed, and I was really unhappy about it at six years old, so I stomped <laughs> upstairs, I pulled out a copy of the Bill of Rights on like some of that cheap <laughs> parchment paper, threw it at my babysitter, and said, I'm not going to bed, I know, you can't make me. <laughs> and she said, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to kids. <laughs> And I just said, show me in the Bill of Rights where it says that. Oh, my God. So this went back and forth. My parents came home, and they were just kind of dying laughing. Um, and I think they knew at that point that even though, you know, there's a lot of medical folks in my in my family, um, that I was going to be taking a different path on it. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of, you know, I always kind of lived my life being in the white suburbs, sort of trying to assimilate into that, not really kind of have, mainly because I think part of it is that my dad, you know, he wanted to be part of that American culture. And therefore sort of rejected sort of the Indian side of things, except in like limited circumstances. Um, but growing up, I was always just trying to kind of fit in with my peers. But also, you know, I didn't you still have the name of Tarek Sheikh. Like there's still going to be those barriers that you don't necessarily think are barriers when you're just a kid. And you sort of reflect on later in life and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that could have gone a lot better, mm. you know, in a lot of different contexts. And like, you know, you start to realize it um, as time goes. What was that experience like? You said you're essentially the brownest kid in your community. What's that experience like for you? Uh, I mean, I always kind of looked at it as a kid of being like, well, I'm not, like being brown isn't that scary, right? Like my dad is scary. Like all my <laughs> friends were terrified of him. He was the guy, you know, he like wouldn't speak to anyone. And when he did, you know, he had like a, he had an accent. And so like everyone just kind of had this like off put sort of like layer with him. And then with me kind of like running around and being just this loud, obnoxious uh, elementary school kid, you know, it's, I was always like, well, you know, I know racism exists, but it's not going to happen to me because if people get to know me, then they'll start to see like, it's not, it's not that big of a deal, which is a real idealistic sort of way of looking at it, mm -hmm. especially when you're not cognizant of some of like implicit bias and, and mm -hmm. some of those things that just exist in society, especially yeah. during like the 80s and, and early part of the 90s. 
And again, now that I kind of reflect on it, I can see it a little bit more for what it was. Um, but it was, it was one of those things that I think, again, I look to it as developing resilience, developing the ability to ask those, to, to question things, developing the, that opportunity just to kind of, um, stand out in a certain way that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So I t- I choose to look at it for more of the positives. Um, I think that, you know, it was a, it was definitely a hard spot to be in generally speaking. Um, especially because for me, I've always had issues around my racial identity, um, which stemmed right from there. It's like when your dad is, you know, kind of like looking to be Americanized and when you're sitting out here and you're kind of like, who am I? I'm supposed to be like that too. And then you start to grow up in the world and nine 11 happens and you have the name Mm. of Tariq Sheikh, And suddenly you're in like this profession of prosecution, which has all of its own problems as far as how we look at it. All those things start to kind of like add up and, and lead to a lot of that confusion, which lucky, luckily later in life, I've been able to kind of come to grips with more so than in my early days. Yeah. So for some context, when what year did you graduate from high school? Oh, man. 1998. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you graduated from high school in 1998. So you weren't a lawyer yet in 2001. No. Is what you're saying. No. I actually, I went to college at American University in D.C. Um, the day of 9-11, uh, we, I was working actually at a, a, at a firm, da- law firm downtown, a criminal defense firm. And me and one of the attorneys uh, that I was with, we saw, we recognized that there was history happening. So we started wandering around D.C. and went to like the White House and we ended up over at the Pentagon. Um, but after that, um, it essentially turned into kind of, you know, you're looking for an apartment. As soon as you say your name, the phone's being hung up on you. Mm. You know, you have, and and really that, that fear of uh, Arabic people just started to grow exponentially. So even then it was kind of like, you know, should I be going outside right now? Should I not? You see, you know, just how you're interacting with people. There was just a lot of changes, even with people that I kind that I knew at my university. Because at that point, nobody really knew how many, you know, sleeper cells there were. There was no sense of how many, you know, terrorists there could be in this country, right? So everybody that had even the slightest name, like mine, was kind of under that level of suspicion mm-hmm. and for a, for a while. So you definitely felt that. What was it like being at the Pentagon that day? Uh. It was sort of chaotic because you walk, we walked across uh, one of the most heavily trafficked bridges in D.C., which was closed down, so it was empty for the first time in years. Um, and the smoke just kind of hit you as as you're walking through. And, uh, you know, there's, there were tons of people just kind of looking and just kind of in shock. And the whole city was kind of shutting down, so there was just a lot of terror and, and, and people being afraid. Um, and we knew we were witnessing something that was going to kind of change the course of the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was really happy to be there at the same point. It was just bewildering. Um, I ran into a couple of friends of mine who were, you know, wandering around down in, uh, Northern Virginia as well. And you could just see, I mean, it was just, I remember their reactions just because it was just sort of sheer panic at that point. Um, so it was an experience that was both amazing in it, in one sense and just, you know, obviously, as we all know, just abhorrent in so many others. Going back to identity, um, you said that your dad kind of largely set aside a lot of pieces of Indian culture, except for a select few. Um, what are those few pieces that he kind of held on to and introduced you to at a young age? Food. Um, his <laughs> favorite Indian dish was uh, keema, which, you know, as a, as a six-year-old kid, when you're having it every single week, um, and it's kind of that food that anytime you tell your friends, like, this is what I'm having for dinner, 
you're getting that reaction of like, what's wrong with you. But also <laughs> it had tons of peas in it. And I've grown like so adverse. I, to this day, I hate peas. I will pick them <laughs> out of anything. There's very, there's no other food that I will literally surgically just dispatch from any <laughs> meal I am eating and just fling them wherever they can go. I yeah. So them. what all is in this dish? So it's basically, it's a ground beef dish. Uh, there's, you know, lots of vegetables and, and Indian spices, the aforementioned peas, mm-hmm. tomatoes, onions, et cetera. And you basically put it over a bed of rice. Um, it was, it was just kind of like that comfort food, um, mm-hmm. for him. And so it's just the thing. It was always on the menu once a week, no matter what. So that was one piece of it. Um, you know, there was some art that he kind of looked into and we had around our house, um, a lot, a lot. He, uh, he had a couple cousins that would contact him every now and then. And he's close with his brother who lives out in London. But I hadn't, I've been to India once in my life and it was for two weeks when I was in law school and I had no idea um, that my dad could speak Urdu. And he was saying, you know, oh, you know, I grew up speaking it, but I don't really remember it. And suddenly you see him in that light and, and you know, he's speaking fluently with the drivers and everything else. And you're like, huh, how does that work? All right, all right, I see. See, there's like, a, there's a lot of layers here. My yeah. dad's always been a very quiet person. Um, he doesn't really talk a whole lot about kind of that background. Um, and when you ask him, a lot of it was like, well, why would I want to go into that? Or mm. you don't really need to know about that. So there's a lot of those pieces that were just kind of, you know, either missing or you just fill in the holes kind of when you grow up the way that I did. Mm-hmm. Did he watch movies or how did he maintain the language? He didn't watch movies. He just he just did it. I guess it's kind of that muscle memory because, you know, that was, mm. the lang- that was the primary language he spoke growing up. He left India. Um, he, his situation was, you know, both of his parents had passed away by the time he was 13. So it was just him and his brother. They kind of made their way um, through school and just kind of, uh, you know, put, getting themselves through it. And then they kind of went, went their separate ways. Uh, his brother went to England and my dad came to America. So, you know, he wasn't watching movies or anything. He was just able to do it. Um, and, and it was impressive to watch it happen. Um, and you know, but I've never spoken it. It was never anything that was like ingrained or anything that was, you know, attempting to learn. It was like our household was much more just kind of living day to day as we were in America. As an adult, are there pieces of Indian culture that you've picked out that are close to you, that you've introduced your daughter to? What does that look like? Well, I've added more layers into culture since my (laughs) wife is Jewish. Um, (laughs) All the layers. Yes. So we celebrated Passover on Saturday. And also Mm -hmm. we celebrated, you know, even in our our household, we've celebrated Christmas and everything. So it's a very secular sort of thing. Religion has not been a big basis for me as far as growing up or otherwise I haven't tried to pass that on. But a bigger acceptance of culture and a bigger understanding of kind of who we are as people has been really the big focal point and the big takeaway. I think one of the things that started happening in my childhood was just, you know, in that American way, the classism and the elitism that you start to see kind of start develop, especially being from like a suburb in New York where I grew up. It was it was one of those things that the easiest way to say it is, you know, whenever I wanted to go to like the town pool or hang out with people, be like, why we have a we have a pool, and. It, it, not not kind of moving past that now to just say like hey everybody you know as far as people goes um treating everyone with respect making sure that you know my daughter understands that you're not better than anybody else um that we are just kind of who we who we want to be and who we attempt to be and it's a constant battle 
day after day after day to find your identity. Because I always know that, like, given as how confused historically I've been about my own racial background, you know, now my daughter will be a quarter Indian, a quarter, you know, half <laughs> Jewish. I don't even know what her makeup is, but how she fits into that spectrum with the last name of Sheikh, as she has as well. Um, it's something that, you know, she'll have to kind of find her own path and just kind of being there and saying like, yep, I know it's confusing is mm-hmm. one of those kind of goals and uh, for me. How old is she? She's eight now. Okay. So yeah. she's on her way to figuring out who she is as a human. Yeah. And she's got, she's got a great identity for herself anyway. I mean, you know, she's, she's a kid that just loves, you know, playing and being around family and, you know, she's, she, you know, there's nothing nothing about that that she finds strange or anything but i think it's only when people start become you know when your kids everyone treats everyone with a lot of like that that kid like you know everybody's in a good spot mm-hmm. and then it's only as we start to get older that some of those divides really start to develop and you start to see things so that's mm-hmm. that's where i think it'll be the bigger challenge yeah other than the bill of rights incident <laughs> what made you realize you wanted to be a lawyer um you know, it, was, it, it wasn't so much that I wanted to be a lawyer. I always wanted to play in the criminal world. Mm-hmm. So, again, I was the kid reading mystery stories. I was playing detective. You know, I was always searching for something and trying to figure things out. So not being a criminal. Not being a criminal. No. <laughs> I, was always, I was always on the law side of, of that one. Um, except, you know, maybe in high school. Yeah. There were a few moments, but that's, that's not Cops here and there. robbers, you were the cop. You know, you got to see things from both angles at times, <laughs> yeah. right? So when I went to college, I was studying justice and we had, there was a program at American, you know, I started off actually in political science. Um, and then I was like, I hate this. Um, <laughs> it's like, wow. It's like, we can all just talk about what we read on the second page of the Washington post, um, mm. you know, in, in school. So I, so I moved on and found there was a program, justice law and society. It wasn't anything super complicated, um, but it was something that kind of piqued my interest. And I kind of started having this idea. I either wanted to be in the FBI or I wanted to go to law school. Um, ultimately, went the law school route and went to Temple University in Philadelphia. And I knew kind of right from the get-go, contracts weren't going to be appealing to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I was definitely focusing on the criminal law side of things. I knew whether it was prosecution, defense, um, or somewhere in the policy arena that the criminal system was where I was supposed to be. Why did you decide on Temple? So Temple, you know, I've I've kind of was like a nomad up and down the East Coast because mm-hmm. I started in Albany, went down to D.C., and I was looking at schools up and down, um, up and down the East Coast, and I actually got a offer from Miami to go down there. So I went down to check it out and I went with a couple of friends for spring break and we're partying down there, and suddenly mm-hmm. like we're on the tour of Miami's campus, and I'm like. Oh, dear God, I'm way too hungover for this. <laughs> I was going to say, you seem like very Miami. <laughs> and then started to realize if I go to school here, yeah. that's not going to work. So off to Philadelphia, I went. <laughs> yeah, I think Miami is good for undergrad. Yeah. I don't know that you go to law school there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was like, yeah. So that was that was one of the smarter decisions I made. And uh, Temple, you know, because, um, I mean, they had a great trial advocacy program. Um, I learned, I mean, I... I'm one of those people that hated law school. I hated the vast majority of it. It was the worst. Um, but the th- the skill set that I picked up of learning to talk in front of people was something that really came to light there. So it'll always have a soft spot for that and not much else. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Specifically, what did you hate about law school? I think from 
so I came straight out of college and went straight to law school. And um, I think that was a mistake because I was one of those people that really needed at least a year of like real world experience mm. just to kind of like recalibrate, right? I thought it was going to be very much the same as college and mm-hmm. it wasn't. Yeah. And in that first year, you know, what I started um, realizing was how much of uh, that first year of law school, there is like a level of brainwashing that mm-hmm. goes on, right? Like they're trying to jam down your throats, how you interpret cases, yeah. what you're supposed to look at. And Temple, I mean, is a very liberal school, which is fine, except for the fact that I always felt like if you weren't kind of advocating from like that position in every aspect, you were wrong, right? And, and you like to ask why. And I like to ask why, and I like picking positions that just are going to be a little bit more out there than others, because why not? Um, So, you know, the first, and and also, I think anytime you're in a new star system, at least for me, like that first year was me just trying to figure out how the game is being played, right? What makes somebody like get an A on a paper or get like that, that participation thing? Unfortunately, the first year of law school is also the most important for your future. So yeah, by year turns two, out. And, turns yeah. out by year two and three, when I started actually figuring out like, okay, mm-hmm. this is how this works. Well, I mean, year you know, three that should point go first where you're taking all of your random classes. Exactly. And just yeah. like doing whatever. You have time yeah. for involvement. You're plugged in. You have yeah. friends. Three should go first. I like that. Uh, that's a great idea. <laughs> you want to make me take property law? Don't do it in the first part. <laughs> do it right before the bar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm brilliant. Okay. That's, I'm going to call up idea to you and today. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you hated law school. Were you involved in any clubs or anything? Not really on the club front. I mean, it was really when I started doing trial av- or or doing um seminars. Like I I did a clinical program with the US attorneys and also with our transportation department, which was actually kind of fascinating because you're, you know, you're walking in over these minor you know, lawsuits and everything, but you're just arguing in front of arbitration panels. Mm. And that's where I started to kind of cultivate that idea of, wait a minute, it's not just like a purely academic, you know, you have to go to Harvard type Mm -hmm. profession here. We are really talking about, like, I knew I could start interpreting the law faster on my feet better, you know, as far as the advocacy point and use that, use that as a strength. And once I saw, you know, how that started to work and, and under, again, understanding that side of the game, that just kind of connected to knowing that whatever I was going to do, it wasn't going to be nearly as write, writing focused as it was going to be advocacy focused um, from, from a trial standpoint. That's awesome. very cool. So you said earlier that you knew that you were going into criminal law in some aspect. It could have been defense. It could have been prosecution. could have been policy. How did you fall onto the prosecution side of things? I started applying, and my first interview was with the Bucks County, Pennsylvania District Attorney's Office, and they said, so you worked for a defense attorney in college. Like, what do you think's more interesting, prosecution or defense? And I decided to be all cute because I'm like, you're going to interview a whole bunch of people on this. I'm going to say the defense. Uh, <laughs> they're like, huh, did not get that job. Yeah, that's the way to get it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really the best move, but again, you learn and then you move on. So yeah. then I interviewed... Um, I actually interviewed with a couple defense people and then interviewed at the Philadelphia district attorney's office um, and uh, walked in and I I was one of the three people that they hired that didn't previously intern with them for our Mm. starting class of 18. Um, And so when I walked in again, I was like, well, you're going to interview a whole lot of people. I got to stand out and everything. Like, so how do you see yourself as a prosecutor? I'm like, kind of like Batman. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Did that somehow, work? somehow they hired me. So there <laughs> I was, like walking in, you know, day one to the DA's office in Philadelphia, and that was in a Batman suit. I, uh, in fact, did wear a Batman suit. (laughs) (laughs) It was under the regular suit. (laughs) It was, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, But I, I, you know, day one, you start with 18 people and you immediately get thrown into a prosecution docket in a city like Philly. And I did not realize until later the experience that I was having that was really kind of like, it was amazing on so many levels. The city of Philadelphia, like the the judicial system, especially at that point, was incredibly corrupt. And you just had no idea the level of corruption you're wading into as you're just kind of navigating and trying to figure out like how does the how do the trials work? How like, you know, mm-hmm. I was trying maybe five trials a day. Oh my god. Um, just running through like these misdemeanor cases. And, you know, some of the ju- the judges are all elected. Um, mm-hmm. so if you make you know, and prosecutors couldn't run for judge without withdrawing, without resigning. Oh, wow. So most of them didn't because they couldn't really afford to run. The really good defense attorneys were making too much money to run for judge. So you had some good judges, but you also had a whole lot mm-hmm. of bad ones. We had mm-hmm. one judge that was found to be a slumlord, uh, for example, and you're just, and literally like holding full-on row houses of tenants and people that didn't have heat. Like, on, like in Monopoly. Like in Monopoly. legit, like the it little was, hotels on Baltic Avenue. It was straight Baltic Avenue. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. um, in Philadelphia. And so there was just so many of those points where, you're, you know, now that I'm reflecting on it, being out in Colorado and being like, you know, walking out my first day and just saying, huh, you mean the judges aren't actively on the takeout here? What What is going on? <laughs> How does this work? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, so you, I got a very big crash course, and I was there for six years just trying to learn how that city functioned and so many aspects of the justice system that were taken for granted. Um, my first DA was, known, was Lynn Abraham, who was known as the tough cookie. She sought more death penalty uh, decisions and verdicts than any other DA. Ooh, um, wow. You know, she was notorious for it. Um, and you just kind of thought that's the way it's supposed to be, being in Philadelphia. Seems like a bizarre association. The tough cookie is the one who seeks the death penalty. That's like a very strange nickname. It, there was a lot of strange things. Women were only allowed to start wearing pants two years, I think it was, before I got there, if uh, if the story was true. Um, she walked in kind of the first day, and she's just like, I want you all to know. The two things, like, one, I love love. I met my husband here. Some of you are going to make... Shockingly, I ended up meeting my wife in the <laughs> DA's office. And then she was also like, and never use your badge on public transportation. <laughs> and then she was like, all that's right. it. And I'm like, okay, all right, Lynn, thank you. Um, that, that'll work. <laughs> the most important lessons. Wow. Okay, so uh, what made you decide to leave Philly, aside from the vast corruption? There's the vast corruption. There was also just the idea of um, you see the worst side of a city like Philadelphia, and it's real bad, right? Um, sure. You know, there's so many stories that probably wouldn't be appropriate for your audience listening at the moment that I will not go into. But uh, at the end of the day, the murders, the violent crime, those things, I love the city of Philadelphia, but also um, was kind of looking to get out of that environment. So my yeah. wife and I, you know, she had she started as a district attorney. She uh, 
went to a big firm. She was miserable in it. And it was just kind of, it was time to have kind of a change from that regard. So we started throwing darts at a map and just deciding as to where we were going to live. Love it. Yeah. And so Colorado. Colorado won the dartlet, the darts on the map. <laughs> we came out to visit for a week. We didn't know anybody out here. And I remember uh, going into a grocery store for a few minutes. And while I was in there, three separate people came up to me and they're like, hey, how you doing? Oh my you God, finding yes. everything okay? My name's Steve. Don't have that happens in Philadelphia. <laughs> You're like, get away from me. <laughs> What's oh your problem? Oh, my God. That was like the most major culture shock for me coming from New Jersey. And I moved to Boulder for CU and people on the street would smile at me. And I was like, what do you What's want? What's your agenda? Yeah. What do you want from me? <laughs> What's with all the kind hearted smiling? <laughs> yeah. Why are you looking at me right now? <laughs> and then I was like, and it's actually all sunny out here all the time. Uh-huh. I don't. Yeah. I don't know what this magical place is, but we clearly stumbled onto <laughs> something <laughs> but you brought your love of philly sports with you i sure did i'm a diehard philadelphia 76ers fan a big philadelphia phillies fan but ironically i hate the philadelphia eagles because i grew up in the summer home of the new york giants and they were mortal enemies uh, so the eagles never translated the other yeah. philly teams did okay so you kept the giants kept the giants yeah right. it, was the, it was the one it was also kind of the one sport that me and my dad bonded over because mm-hmm. you know he wasn't really into too much except for football so the giants were always kind of our link together mustangs and football he mustangs really did jump fo- right in <laughs> yeah. Sure did. yeah go for it are they still in new york yeah uh well they actually split time between new york and florida now but yes cool So I know that prosecutorial philosophy is a passion of yours. Um, What did you take, again, other than corruption, what did you take from your early experiences as a DA that would kind of build on your philosophy later? Really, the biggest thing that I could say is that we looking at people as humans kind of all throughout the system, which is something that prosecutors out here, I think, do struggle with. Um, kind of in the grand scheme of things and not intentionally, but you get raised in this prosecution culture. And especially in Philadelphia, when you don't have time to think about the people that you are prosecuting and you're just kind of churning through them, right? Like, you know, we all focus on murder cases and like the severity of those and the murder, we know what a murder represents, right? But it's really those like low, those misdemeanor cases where you have the most impact on people and you don't necessarily know you're doing it, right? Any DA's office has a county court unit, and in that court unit, you have your first-time DA's that are just thrown kind of into the fire. And so the first day out, you get a DUI case, and you're like, well, what's the offer on this? And, you know, somebody tells you you got to put them on probation for multiple years or send them to jail for six months. That becomes the starting place for every Mm. DUI case you're ever going to look at. No one is really sitting back and taking a look at how these DUI prosecutions, for example, are going to impact your community. Or when you see somebody that's been brought into custody um, for disorderly conduct and you're like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out of here with credit for time served so you can go on and just plead guilty to the disorderly conduct and you'll be done. You're not really contemplating too much how that conviction can potentially impact somebody's life. So learning that from Philadelphia, coming out here, kind of seeing it, I try to look at everybody with that sense of humanity and try to teach that as kind of the starting place. It's not so much the conviction. It's not so much the trial. And slowly but surely, we're kind of getting there, but there's still a whole lot of resistance to it in our prosecution community. So what are you doing now in the prosecution community? What's your role? So I actually just joined the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office under Alexis King. Um, 
And I am currently taking a role where I'm looking at our juvenile unit, our intake unit, and our diversion program. So there's three aspects of the office in primary focus. And the reason those three units exist uh, under my umbrella is because that's really where the cases are starting, right? Those are the areas mm-hmm. that go. I have a very special passion um, for juvenile law. Um, I think, you know, the better work and more, uh, the more we can keep ourselves from impacting the kids in a negative way, the better in the juvenile system. We really have to kind of allow the child to kind of make a lot of these decisions as to who they want to be and what they want to do and really helping guide kind of that decision is more the goal rather than being kind of the person who's who's like trying to be the hammer and trying to say you're either going to get this right or we're going to send you off to the juvenile prison system the diversion unit again if the more people we can keep out of the system altogether right the better we can in jefferson county our diversion program people get sentenced to diversion so you commit a domestic violence crime. You end up going to uh, before the court, and the court says, I sentence you to two years of diversion. Well, if you're being sentenced to diversion, what are we diverting? So our goal here is to now move that to a pre-file diversion system, capturing these cases kind of before they hit the system, so that way we can have a bigger impact and hopefully you know, reduce the consequences of the criminal justice system in order to help some of these people get back on track. In the intake unit, we have to look at how we charge. I think in a lot of district attorneys' uh, offices, we don't give enough credence to the impact that our charging decisions have over a case. When you charge, for example, a high-level crime, however you're going to charge that, whether it's an F, a felony of the second degree, felony of the third degree, or a misdemeanor, that impacts every decision that you're going to make from bond to how you're going to end up talking to your victims to what your plea offers are going to be and so on. So really, you have to kind of be as accurate as you possibly can at the first stop on the tour, at the charging decision, um, rather than kind of leaving that in in a muddy sort of place. I'm a criminal defense attorney, so I I love these concepts. I wholeheartedly agree with them. Linda, from someone who's not in the criminal system, what questions does that or what reaction does that trigger for you? I think it's it's fascinating to hear about... um, the decisions that you all have to make on the prosecution side and also how you interact with the defense side and how that um, affects the ethics of your cases, I guess. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of a case that I took, or I'm sorry, a class that I took with Michael Doherty when I was in law school. And I'm curious to hear also about kind of how you handle dealing with the defense side and managing the cases. There's a lot of different strategies people employ when it comes to negotiating with (laughs) counsel and dealing with them. And, you know, so the public defenders, for example, kind of teach the idea of being antagonistic towards the district attorneys. It's the philosophy. If you have, if you're applying to go into the public defenders and you have anything prosecution related in your background, they won't give you an interview. I was going to ask if that's a real thing. Because that's what I heard in law school. So it's true. In the PD, they won't hire DA people. They won't hire, even if you did just an internship. Wow. So that's the way that it's that very, works. And it's, it's you know, states are different. But in Colorado, it's very easy to kind of get branded as you're a DA or you're a PD. Mm. Um, I learned to practice law in Missouri. And there was plenty of <laughs> back and forth. We interned back and forth. People left one office, went to the other. There was a lot of shuffling. In Colorado, that's not the case. 
And honestly, that was one of the things that happened to me in Philadelphia too. Some of my best friends out there were public defenders. So you battle like hell in the courtroom and then you go have a beer. And obviously out here, there's a very different feel about it in some Mm -hmm. ways justifiable, right? I mean, you know, if you're the feeling, I think that if you're zealously representing your client, that that means kind of going down that direction. The truth of the matter is, is I practice exactly the same way with counsel. Everybody to me is on the same line and I have total respect for both the profession and the people that do it. Um, as long as you're straight with me, I'm going to be 100% straight with you. Mm -hmm. And that served me really well. And I think a lot of public defenders that I've interacted with have kind of rejected the, we need to be confrontational notion because Mm. if you're a PDI trust and you're telling me like, Hey, you really need to take a look at this case. I'm really going to take a look at the case. (laughs) Right. Um, and that's, and that's just kind of the way that I tend to operate. It served me well. There's definitely been some moments where dealing with, um, that more antagonistic side of things. It's been, I've been like, are you, you're, you're actually just straight lying to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> that becomes a different conversation. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is a question kind of for both of you, but is there ever a feeling of conflict where, um, you know, you don't want to appear too cordial or too, you know, buddy, buddy to avoid, um, the defendant feeling like there's anything wrong going on? Yeah, I think that's a consideration more for defense attorneys. Sure. You know, when I'm in a courtroom with a public defender and we're actually dear friends, she's not going to treat me like or he's not going to treat me like a dear friend in front of a client because a client, especially the clientele that a public defender represents, is going to be like, you're all in cahoots and Mm -hmm. you're all against me and the system's rigged and this is all. So we do keep a respectful distance, even if, you know, like you said, we're all going out for drinks later. That's going to be removed. And in some situations, I'll even have friends say, you know, I know that I have clients that hang out in certain places. We're not going those places when we do get together Mm. just to kind of keep that trust um, in their client attorney relationship. Yeah, and I think there's certain things that both DAs and defense attorneys, uh, you either get it or you don't, or you can improve on it. And, and more seasoned attorneys, I think, understand it a little more. It's, you know, defense attorneys are always going to be in a bad position with their client in the courtroom if you're acting too buddy buddy with mm-hmm. everybody, right? It's the same thing for us with our victims. I explain to victims, you know, we work together every single day, we know each other, you know, but there is a professional line in that courtroom, and yeah. we're going to you know, you're going to hear my arguments and it doesn't matter necessarily who's on the other side of things. And I think most of the defense attorneys I work with in the same way, we're still going to, you know, shake hands, have quick conversation or mm-hmm. something. But um, I would, and, and in the counter to that, you know, you see occasionally when things get really heated um, between DAs or defense attorneys, I would never want to embarrass a defense attorney in front of their client um, same as vice versa. I don't want you putting me in a bad situation for the right. victim. We can have conversations outside and you can yell at me all you want. Let's <laughs> but, take it outside. But yeah. there's a, the courtroom is not necessarily the place for that unless we're doing it in front of the judge and we're making our, our arguments. So, yeah. And I was going to ask, do you ever feel like, like there's any kind of internal conflict if you're, you know, up against someone that you're friends with and you do have a really like conflict heavy situation. Mallory's shaking her head really fervently, but like you're able to truly separate that professional and personal. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you're, I mean, I try to live my professional career as being always honest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I feel like if I look at the facts of a case, I'm going to argue that the best that I possibly can. And I'm going to do my job and I'm not going to hold it. I'm not going to pull any punches because you're my friend over here. I'm winning. I'm going after what I think is right in this case. Right. 
And at the same time, um, you know, if you're always honest, the conflict that that turmoil that comes in comes in when you're like, oh, crap, this legal argument is going very poorly for me. Right <laughs> now. It's not it's not because, you know, of who's on the other side of that, um, because I, like I said, my friend, the people that I'm friends with on the defense side, I'm friends with them because I have great respect for them. Sure. And the job that they do. Um, yeah. And that's why it's, you know. I appreciate them making great arguments that when they when they if they make a great argument that beats me, it's the tip of the cap on that front or just the right thing should have happened and that's what should have happened in the first place. Fair enough. So you mentioned cobalt in the beginning and culty colors aside, <laughs> um, why should listeners be interested in applying for cobalt? I mean Cobalt has produced so many um, people for which this has been a transformative experience. And I can say I I was the part of the class of 2017. My wife, Rachel, um, who uh, was was a member of a cobalt class a couple years earlier, and really the programming that, that took place and just hearing these different perspectives from a place of leadership was something that I desperately needed when I heard it. In 2017, I was struggling in my career. I was looking at, you know, what do I actually want to be doing? Why am I even here right now? And I heard Justice Marquez talk about uh, authenticity in leadership and had the struggles that she had, you know, coming in, being the youngest attorney, you know, and everyone kind of putting their own brand on who she was and then suddenly being like, I just have to kind of be me in that sense. Hearing that was so unbelievably liberating for me, just as far as, yeah, authenticity is possibly the most important thing. And that's why that, you know, I talk about conf- talking with counsel, mm-hmm. connecting with the court, working your way around. I'll talk to you guys the same way I talk to a juror, the same way that I talk to the court. And once I realized I didn't have, there didn't have to be a lawyer me and a real me, mm. things started kind of clicking in that regard. Yeah. So Cobalt, I can point to as that, uh, the friends and the people that you make out of it in the, in the legal community, right? I mean... You know, I know Mallory now. That's been worth the price of admission all on its own. And I know you guys have had a ton of different Cobalt guests um, mm-hmm. as part of that. It's just, you know, it it takes on this whole thing where you genuinely start to care about that bigger community if you don't know that it's there. And when you see it and you start to see, wait a minute, there's all these people doing all these amazing things and really trying to, you want to be a part of that. And I think that's, it, it, it was an experience that you just can't replicate. And obviously, I loved it enough to stay around and keep <laughs> trying to work through, you know, the the boards and the, and the subsequent years going along. You were on the committee that plans the sessions the year I was on it. So you planned yeah. one of our sessions that was a good one, I will say. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, yes, you get to we, I got to plan sessions and then we went on to the executive committee and being a chair of the program. And every the benefit to me personally is every year I get to go and listen to these speakers again. Mm-hmm. And it's just this invigorating process. And you're meeting all these new people um, in the legal community. And honestly, there's been no better there's been no better thing I could have done just to feel alive within a legal profession where so much of the time we're not really feeling great about our jobs or mm-hmm. our health or otherwise. Yeah. That's a great spot to try and get some of that back. And that Justice Marquez presentation hits you somewhere new every year. Every, <laughs> every single, single year. Every single year, even though it's substantively the same. There's a different takeaway for where you're at in life. And I think that's a lot of the magic of Cobalt is – it's the timing always seems right. That's something that we hear a lot from participants is that it was it's the perfect time. Um, and so that's that's really special too. It sure is. And there's and you know the thing with Cobalt is like not everything is going to resonate with everyone the same mm-hmm. way. So there yeah. are some people that are like, eh, Justice Marquez wasn't for me. 
And then you hear some of the other, which, first off, that's How crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Wrong. We will come to blows over this. But after I'm done slapping them with my dueling glove, they talk about the things that were actually more impactful to them. Yeah. Um, you know, emergenetics is kind of one of the personality tests. That's where the colors comes from. And that kind of just shows you how your brain sort of works. And I know for me, I'm a very big picture type thinker. So I really like like looking at things from a 10,000 foot level. And then I like analyzing. I come up with like 100 ideas and I know 99 of them are going to be garbage. But that one I feel really strong about. <laughs> and then it comes time to execute that. And I'm like, nah, I can't be bothered. I'm on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I, I needed to solve it. So yep. you learn how to work with teams and you learn also just kind of how people that think differently than you can complement sort of the way in which you think. Mm -hmm. So that's changed my practice a lot in trials because, you know, when I do a trial, for example, I love thinking about the strategy. I love thinking about the order, how we're going to have the maximum impact on the jury. I don't like things like jury instructions. So <laughs> who does though? There are green people <laughs> who love that stuff. And there are so many people that geek out on jury instructions because it's law and you get to mess around with it and you get to tinker there. They doing that leaves me more time to think about the things I want to think about. And we both enjoy the, the roles that we're doing. For some people, thinking about the strategy of a case is the most anxiety-producing part of a trial. So cool. I'll deal with that. You worry here. And then we have a better product at the end because we're we're not fighting over who's doing the awesome cross of the defense of the defendant. Mm. We're fighting over we're not we're more complimenting each other to put something yeah. better forward. So um, a couple of questions. One what is your color? Go ahead with that. And then I am a yellow blue color. So yellow. And, and what does that mean? So yellow. Well, it means so yellow is conceptual thinking. So the easiest way to kind of put it is they, you know, you get grouped by your color and they're like, so how would you go on vacation? So you have your green people and the green people are all <laughs> writing lists of like yep. itineraries minute by minute, which would be my hell. <laughs> If I'm ever on vacation with somebody making an itinerary, I've chosen oh poorly, God. right? It's then you literally got literally how I vacation. <laughs> and I've told you you're green. Then you got the red people who are social people. It's more about who you're going on vacation with. Then and you got who your... you're going to meet on vacation. Like you go on vacation to make friends. Making that's so friends. weird. Okay. Oh god, that's weird too. Yeah. <laughs> then you got your blue people who are your analytic people. They're looking for the best deals. It doesn't matter where you're going as long oh. as you're scoring hard on the deal front, right? Uh -huh. And then so they ask you to like make this chart, and then they come to the yellow people, and we just drew a big picture of a guy smiling with thought bubbles <laughs> popping out of his head because it's all valid, right? <laughs> So when you're yellow, blue, you basically you're you're thinking about things from a 10,000 foot level. You're analyzing the crap out of all the ideas that are coming through. And then when you're done, my profile was called I see the forest and want other people to count the trees. <laughs> it's pretty accurate <laughs> at the all end right. of the day. Fair. Um, OK, and not to detract or distract from Cobalt, but um, you mentioned earlier the moment you realized that you didn't have to have a lawyer you and a real you. And. And, and that kind of related to the way that you interact with other counsel in your cases where you can just kind of be straight with them. And so I'm curious if you have any advice for young attorneys who are still building confidence and um, who need to have the kind of lawyer self because they don't trust whoever is on the other side and are afraid to just be straight with them because they don't know if they're going to be manipulated. Right. 
That is an awesome, awesome question. And it's literally the most important thing, you know, that I talk about. I mean, mentoring younger attorneys is my favorite. That's what's kept me in the job for this long. And Mm. I see that all the time with younger attorneys of who do you want to be, right? And you're trying to give this real professional statement to the judge. And you're trying to, you know, tell the jury how you've thought, like you've mapped it all out for six hours. And at the end of the day, like that old adage about being yourself is still the most important part. When you ask yourself, am I really not trusting the person that I'm speaking to? Is that really a question? Or do you not trust yourself and how you're presenting Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, this other person, you're going to make mistakes. I do it all the time. If you can't tell, I talk really fast. I swear a lot. I'm amazed. I've only had (laughs) a couple minor ones. Thank you. Yes. Um, I can be loud. I can talk over people. All those things are things that I know I like need to work on and I'm a, I'm a constant work in progress on it. But the core of who I am has, I've been able to develop more confidence because nothing I'm saying feels fake, right? If I'm talking to a judge about a legal argument and I'm like, beyond a reasonable doubt was a concept developed in the early <laughs> jurisprudence of America. That is so fake to me on every level. And I'm that like, judge is like, okay, great. <laughs> right. So I'm looking at this judge and I'm like, you don't want to hear it either. So let's talk about the one thing you do yeah. want to hear about, right? And yeah. this is that. And here's why this matters. And I've studied this case a million ways over. You know, That's the thing attorneys get real, real skittish about. It's like, you know your case better than anybody. It doesn't matter. Now you're walking into a courtroom and like, you know, for take a a standard domestic violence case, okay? If my friend uh, got got hurt or or, or if my friends got hit by her boyfriend, I'm not going to sit there and be like, so then what did you do after this? How did this proceed in this fashion? After he struck you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're like, what happened? Okay, and then she's asking things, and then you want to know more details. So you ask follow-up questions about that, right? Right. And when you talk to somebody, you're putting the victim at ease more because that's a real conversation. The jury is following because they've heard these conversations between ordinary people before. It's those super professional approaches that actually backfire in a trial setting, especially comparatively to just talking to mm-hmm. somebody and just interacting with them and just treating them like, again, humans, mm-hmm. right? They didn't, The victim didn't ask to be here um, mm-hmm. whatsoever. So you got to kind of put them at ease with your by not being so formal. Right. I hate attorneys that use super big words and really just love like kind of that that this is going to be the greatest closing argument from that standpoint. It's usually not going to work out that way comparatively to people that can just talk to your jury and tell them why you believe in what things because when they're feeling how you believe it, then that's how you get people to start to believe yeah. things as well. So what I would tell really any younger attorney is you can't you can't manipulate forever who you are and make things like sound in a different aspect. And if you are in this position where you don't feel comfortable talking from the place that you would talk to anybody else, you need to kind of hit a recalibration button. That's that happens to this is a problem still for attorneys that have been doing this 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah. I'm sure you guys have both seen them and you know exactly the types that I'm talking about. Yep. There are certain people that will always talk to you just like on the level. And then there's always the people that are like, I am supervisor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, am, yeah, I am this person. Yes. Respect the authority. And you're just like, uh, uh, okay, this is painful. Yeah. And yeah. as Judge Faye once told me, juries sense sincerity. Like yeah. when I'm in front of a jury, I can only be Mallory Rebel. If I'm trying to be Laura Baker or David Beller, a jury's going to know I'm trying to be someone other than me and they're not going to trust me. And that's a really important thing for supervisors to keep in mind, right? Is is I can't teach you to be me in a courtroom. 
I have to learn you and then try to like give you, you know, if, as a supervisor, try and say like, here's some things you can do to help reach your, your potential of mm-hmm. who you are. Right. People that have like that appellate sort of mind that do <laughs> trial work are always going to think of things in a little different way than I think about them. And that's totally fine. It's totally a necessary thing. You know, work from that place of the law, but work in that place that feels comfortable, but constantly pushing yourself to improve is really the way you get better at this job. Um, one thing that I st- – another thing I kind of learned from Cobol is I used to make all these to-do lists, right? I was like, list, list, list. Uh, this will get help me get things done. And I never look at the list. Mm. What am I looking at lists for, right? And everybody tells you, you got to do it this way. You got to have this system. You got to have this organization. Well, no, some people don't. And, you know, we have to, be, we have to understand that everybody – there's the work side of things and like how you interpret the work that you're doing. But then that person side as it connects is usually going to be a little bit different and you have to, it's incumbent upon supervisors and leaders to help that person interpret this in the way that works for them to get the maximum product. So as we wind down, other than being a driving force in progressive prosecution, what is next for you? What is Who next? will you be? You know, like my passion, I've never thought I would be a prosecutor as long as I have. I always thought I would be here for like three years and then I'd go make some real money. Mm. And, you know, obviously I've stuck around and, and continue to do this. And the thing that I keep seeing is there's a whole lot of people talking about criminal justice reform and what they want to see happen, but from like all these various different angles. And there's very few people, myself included, I see it through a one lens from prosecution. There's very few people that actually have this whole global sense of where criminal justice needs to go. And so at the legislative level where it's like a constant war to say like, you know, we need to pass these laws and get tougher from legislators who may or may not really understand the the backdrop of what they're talking about. I think for me is a constant trying to continue to round my views with different perspectives. I know that I'm somebody that doesn't just pigeonhole into the prosecution universe solely as classic prosecutors think. Those views have never really worked for me. Mm-hmm. So really, I don't know where the world's going to go on it, but I know that as long as I kind of keep the things that got me to this point going, being authentic, being sincere, uh, and continue to try to expand my viewpoint and realize I don't know it all and need to keep learning, something will happen, right? And that's that's where it goes. Um so that's wherever that leads. I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. I'll check back in in a few years. <laughs> somewhere great for the criminal justice system. I, I hope trust. so. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. Well, Tarek, thank you so much for being with us today. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. This, this was, a lot, was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> this has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. 
This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.